Welcome to the United Podcast, episode 71. Now, you're probably wondering, this podcast is starting off a little bit differently. I am not Tom, I am Larry, but I thought I'd free Tom of his duties today. And we also are being joined by a special guest, someone who you may have seen on your TV screens before, well-renowned, former Foxtel, or sorry, former Fox Sports correspondent, I should say, for the Premier League, Daniel Garb, how are you? Very well. Well, as well as we can be in these uh, crazy circumstances engulfing the globe at the moment. But uh, yeah, happy to have the mundane existence of coronavirus broken up by uh, a guest appearance on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Mate, thanks for being on. Uh, are you slapped up on toilet paper, by the way? Have you achieving that ultimate prize these days? <laughs> We're okay. We, uh, we got it all stocked up before uh, the chaos hits so uh, i haven't checked the uh i haven't checked the uh the stock room lately but i think we're okay good here and as always we have tom how are you mate in a different role today yeah i'm good mate i feel a little bit uncomfortable i must say being on this side of the um hosting duties but um i can't say i'm too nervous but i'm a little bit uncomfortable if i must say well that's all right get used to being uncomfortable that's how we grow um you know, we all got to improve our skills. So let's rip straight into um, Garby. As most people should know, you are a Liverpool fan. So we are being generous in the spirit of, you know, being inclusive and chatting to everyone yeah. in these isolated times. But we want to talk to you about Liverpool for a little bit because in the grand context of things, they are first um, or coming first or leading the Premier League table um, as far as things currently sit. Um, before we get into how the season may or may not end, how do you compare this current side with, you know, United, sorry, that Liverpool sides who have been successful in the past, thinking of the mm. 05 Champions League side um, between 2007 and 2009, you had a good team but didn't quite get there. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah we're going uh, pretty well at the moment, or we were until this, uh, yeah, rather annoying virus <laughs> just came in and stopped our progression. Uh, I must say as well, thanks for having a Liverpool fan on your podcast. I'm sure it's rather different, but... Uh, I look forward to putting our uh, rather strong allegiances to the side for the moment. And they're talking about our respective teams in a nice manner. We're meant to get through things together at this uh, time in the world. So I guess we're doing that this afternoon. But yeah, it's, it's a very different team compared to, or different progression theme, if you like, compared to the 05 team that won the Champions League and then the Benitez years that followed where Liverpool almost won the league. Because... That 05 win, honestly, came out of nowhere. I mean, if you look back at that 05 season in the league, Liverpool were very ordinary. They were coming off a season in 04 where they were poor. Gerard Julia was, was sacked. Benitez came in. They finished fifth in the league that season. But somehow we just managed to go on this extraordinary run in Europe and, and elevate our performances in the Champions League. And then in the league, we seemed to just drop points with regularity. And the team wasn't that great either. I mean, it had some superstar players. Gerard, Zabi Alonso was a great signing. Louis Garcia, uh, Carragher at the back. But the rest of the team was pretty average, like Milan Barosh and Jimmy Traore and Igor Bishkan, just guys who worked hard. But then somehow produced these like great games. And when the Champions League came around, it was bizarre. So they won it there. And then they had to go almost the other way around to the current Liverpool team, like win the Champions League first and then slowly build up and try and get the league uh, going and try and build a team that could actually compete week by week and in two competitions. And 
they almost got there, as you said, but just fell, just fell short. This has been a slow build from Klopp and, and from Liverpool, just signing the right players, quality players in the first couple seasons. Uh, that led to a title challenge, of course, where they were oh so close to winning it, but won the Champions League, which was obviously an amazing achievement in 2019. And then, uh, yeah, up to this point where, let's be honest, they are going to win the league. What happens from here, we just don't know. But the league is pretty much secured without the trophy being given to them. So, yeah, this team is is definitely far better because it's one that has been built with far more security. It's been done the right way. Um, 2005 was great, but the way in which they've recruited players and uh, and built this quality side has been done in stark contrast and in a way that I think Liverpool fans have felt far more secure that, yes, this is a legacy and a dynasty potentially that can go on for a while as opposed to the 05 period where you just, it seemed a little bit uh, the wrong way around, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely agree with you. Um, I was talking to Tom earlier, and Tom, jump in uh, if you like, but I actually think the period from that late, early part of the late 2000s of uh, 2007 to 2009, I actually think player for player, Liverpool had a better side. Um, when you talk about Torres, um, Xavi Alonso, Gerard, uh, Carragher, Pepe Reina at one point was a really goalkeeper. I think he had more individual players in that time that were more brilliant. However, the system at the moment is a perfect complement to your side, which you've alluded to. Even thinking about, um, you know, a current debate with United is what to do with Paul Pogba. And I almost look at Liverpool with Coutinho. You lose a better player, but you've almost created a system that complements the perfect team. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think it's without any question that the team is less reliant on the individual now. It's the system. Um, And that's probably a a period of growth from the Brendan Rodgers years where it perhaps was a little bit more reliant on the individual. I think the era you're referring to before under Benitez, that was also very systematic. Um, the way Benitez set the team up, you could put any sort of player in and quite often inferior players to, to other teams and they would produce like in that Champions League run in 05 because Benitez was so meticulous with his tactics. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think the, the quality of play now, yeah, there might have been a couple of individuals that were a bit more a bit more special in Gerard and Torres, but overall the team now is, I think, of a, a slightly... Um, superior standard, especially at the back. I mean, it's the defenders that make the difference. Uh, Alexander-Arnold, Robertson, Virgil van Dijk is the best defender in the world by a long way. Uh, Allison in goals. They didn't really get near that defensively, I think, in any era in the, in the Premier League time at, uh, at Liverpool. And uh, going forward, the quality is still there, obviously, with Mane, Salah and Firmino. So, no, I'd say this is the best Liverpool team without a doubt, talent-wise, quality-wise that we've seen and certainly uh, in terms of success in the Premier League era. And this, I'll be honest, when I was in Liverpool last year to watch them win the Champions League, there were many uh, knowledgeable Reds fans, elderly fans who have seen every single team. And a lot of them said to me, this is the best Liverpool team that we have ever seen. Yeah. um, Well, look, I can't disagree with you, but on that theme of Liverpool improving the system and granted, um, you have built from the back. A side that has started to do the same thing is Manchester United. Mm. Um, looking at uh, who United have brought in uh, for this season, uh, we had 
Harry Maguire and Aaron Wambasaka uh, to improve the defense. Um, and then we've also in the sorry, we've also added Dan James, um, who mm. has played a lot of football, which more football than I think most United fans would have thought of. And I imagine most football fans hadn't even heard of him yeah. coming from the championship. And we've also brought in Fernandez and Nigalo, um, who have really lifted United's fortunes. Um, Tom, I might just take it to you, mate, to take it away. But um, if we look at signings, um, well, your thoughts, and then I guess getting Garby's thoughts as well on our current signings and where do you think we are United starting to make that systematic system that Liverpool have so success, so successfully built? Well, that's why I think if you look back over sort of the post-Ferguson period, we've had fantastic players and if, if you want to make comparison, almost player to player, you could almost make a case every season we've had better players than Liverpool squad but now sort of their progress has shown that it's not about the individual player, it's about the system. You look at players we brought in like Di Maria and Alexis Sanchez, these fantastic players, but they didn't quite fit. And you look at a player like, I don't know, Jordan Henderson or James Milner, you think, okay, a good professional footballer, but you know they're not sort of that star quality, but they fit like a glove to what Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp wants. And again, I don't want to sit here praising Liverpool too much, but you <laughs> sort of unfortunately have to do it. But I think in regards to Solskjaer, we've criticised him a lot on this podcast. However, it is what he has got, I think, almost a 9 or a 10 out of 10 is his, is his signings. I think Dan James was one of those, okay? It's, um, it's sort of synonymous with Man United sort of getting that hidden gem and hoping they um, develop into a great star. Who knows if he will or if he won't. But every other signing has been on the money from uh, from Solskjaer, I should say. Um, Harry Maguire, okay, it is a lot of money, but we needed a good defender. You, you have to spend a lot of money for a good defender. Wan-Bissaka, fantastic. Bruno Fernandes obviously wanted in the off-season. Didn't happen for whatever reason. Um, topic for another day. And um, Igalo, I think, again, it caused a lot of controversy, which we'll get into, and sort of how United found themselves in a position to get Igalo. However, in terms of what the Solskjaer needed at that time, I think he got a bang on, and it's just unfortunate that the season has come to an end, or supposedly an end at the moment, that we haven't seen it continue, because, well, for one reason, I'm glad it hasn't continued, because obviously don't want to see Garvey's side win the league, however, we were progressing very well, and suddenly, that's gone out the window, so it's a shame from sort of both clubs' point of view, that I um, haven't been able to kick on. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with everything you've said. Uh, Garvey, from an outsider's view, obviously you're not a United how do you view United's progress under Solskjaer? Obviously, he started red hot when he came in, replacing Mourinho. Yeah. And just the signings he's made, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I think things turned off the back of the Bruno Fernandes signing. I think that was the key one in an attacking sense. Maguire came with a lot of fanfare and has been inconsistent, but started to, to solidify a bit more in the second half of the season. Uh, one Bissaka, I guess, much the same. Uh, but Fernandez is the one that was starting to get United going. I think that was just a really shrewd acquisition at a perfect time. A lot of people say you can't get good business done in January. Well, history will show that's not always the case. Emmanuel Vidic, I'm pretty sure, was signed in January as well and did uh, fantastic things for United, as have a few other players. So uh, I think that's the one that really got United going in an attacking sense, a player that the other players feel so confident in when he's on the ball. And that allows them to play with a bit more freedom. And that led to a great run before the, the league was halted. So that was a good signing. I think United's problem is, and look, Fernandez is maybe a, a contrast to that, 
So maybe there are better signs moving forward. But watching United from afar, to me, it mirrors over the last few years, your problems, so much of what Liverpool went through in the early 90s. When Liverpool went from being the, the best team in the 80s and then in the 90s, they went through some changes and, and United started winning the league. Liverpool thought, let's just spend the money. We're Liverpool. Eventually, it'll come back and we'll be the big team again and we'll lift the trophy again. We'll just keep signing these players. And you know what? It didn't work. And before we knew it, 10 years had gone by and we had dipped so far down and United had just continued uh, being... It was just such a big difference between the two teams. And uh, I look at United over the last few years and they've done the exact same thing. It's almost this copycat mentality. Whatever Liverpool have done, let's keep doing the same thing. Buying this player, buying that player. Well, where's the actual process? Who's at the top of the club making these decisions? Ed Woodward on his own with the manager. Whereas you look at Liverpool and Man City and the way in which they're set up. It is, a, it is a complete contrast to that. And there is such a thorough process that goes into it. And maybe things are starting to change a bit. Maybe the Fernandez uh, signing was a good example of that. But uh, I've watched United and thought that's the exact same mistakes Liverpool have been making or were making in the early 90s. And they seem to be making them over the last five years or so. If they don't change the way in which they process transfers, I'm not sure they'll be able to jump up to the top, the top level like Liverpool and Man City. I agree with you for sure. Basic, uh, definitely within the last five years or since Fergie's retired, mm. there seems to be a lot of structure that has gone. And I think that's part of the mistake and the genius that was Fergie. When you're at a club for so long, you can basically build it from top to bottom. I see the argument United need a director of football. Well, Fergie was the director of football. He was the coach. He was the manager. He basically had his finger in every single pie. Yeah, And that's, if you believe reports, it's probably why uh, the Glazers wanted to get him on the board. Basically, it was if he retired, they could take more control of operation, which looks like it's happened. But I think this season, I'm seeing the signings we're making. And if I look at someone like Dan James, he's yeah. a, a player from Swansea, not the superstar name. Even Harry Maguire, I know he costs a lot of money, but for me, he wasn't really the superstar signing. I think if you wanted... What Woodward would have done in the past, you'd be chasing Sergio Ramos or yeah. Varane. So I feel I feel like there is a change there. But what I want to get into, um, basically, this is how we got you on here. Um, <laughs> so the topic of um, Erling Haaland, I know that you, your personal belief is United just should have gotten the deal done. Um, mm. Where again, we were speculating based on reports of yeah. is there a release clause. I took the stance of if there is a release clause, United should not that could leave the club red face should he leave in six ready six. Tom, before I go to Garvey, because he's he's certain he's right, where do you sit on it? Look, I think look, I want the player. I I think Solskjaer definitely want it. I think it was key. Solskjaer even spoke about publicly that he did want him. It's a player that I think would fit United. I think he's a perfect striker. I think it's exactly what Lukaku sort of could have been for United and Solskjaer did want to keep Lukaku just Lukaku wasn't happy with the role he was playing I think Agallo even is maybe sort of a, sort of a short term option with maybe a long term option to go for Agallo um, to go for a Haaland sorry but I'm with you I just think this, and I love Paul Pogba everyone who listens to this knows I'm a big fan of Paul Pogba but it is just a circus Every week there is a story with Rayola and it just doesn't help things. And even here, how long's Holland been at Dortmund for 
two months. Two months. And he's already minutes. been linked with Real Madrid. And that is simply because Rayola wants to move him on. And if he was at United and he had a so-called release clause in his contract, Rayola would be shopping him around Europe straight away. And that's just, it's just a mistake United make dealing with um, Mino Rayola. He causes so many problems. Um, I just, yes, he can take that short-term sort of high of having that player and he might bring short-term success. But I think United needs to move past it. And yes, we could have that fantastic player, but I just think we've got that in Paul Pogba and it's not working because of the sort of the surrounding circus that comes with the Mino Rayola. My, um, my take on this is just because it's blown up regarding Pogba doesn't mean it will with Haaland. They're completely different players and completely different personalities. Now, yes, the agent has an influence, but Paul Pogba allows that. Paul Pogba to happen. Who's to say Erling Haaland would be? For everything we've seen from Erling Haaland, he is completely different. He is a team player. He is a hard worker. He is down to work. The reports from Red Bull Salzburg are that he's just anything but a Paul Pogba type individual and the complete contrast. So my view on the whole thing was, okay, the release clause wouldn't be ideal if that was a stipulation of the contract. But you're Manchester United. You're supposedly one of the biggest clubs in the world, if not the biggest in many people's eyes, you back yourself to get a player that is a once-in-a-generation talent, clearly, and you say to yourself, you know what? We'll convince this player to stay because he'll turn things around. We'll be back in the Champions League. We'll convince him to stay for us because he's just that good. Worst-case scenario, he decides to leave in a year or so. He's maybe got us back into the Champions League and we get a great return on him. Worst-case scenario. So I didn't see any sort of negative angle on it whatsoever when you look at the player and his personality. I was just gobsmacked that so many United fans were like, nah, let's not get him because there might be a release clause in the contract because you're spooked of what's happened with Riola and, and Pogba. I think it's a, it's a completely different case. See, uh, I f- fully understand sort of the view of Pogba there. However, we're already seen with Haaland. It was a circus in terms of getting him out of Salzburg in terms of Dortmund, PSG, Man United. It's already, it's not a circus yet, but it looks like it'll turn into a circus in terms of him leaving Dortmund. And I'd have to say, well, Haaland's then allowing that from Rayola. But there's always going to be the case with a, a highly touted player that it's going to be a, a transfer drama that goes on for a month or two. That's, that happens with every player when they are a superstar and especially a young phenom like Haaland. You're going to be linked to all these different clubs. There's going to be speculation. There's going to be meetings. Salzburg were happy to sell him just like they were Minamino to Liverpool. So all these things are going to happen. That's just par for the course. I don't think there was anything untoward uh, with the the way that uh, Haaland's transfer dealings uh, went on. I I agree with that point, but we're already seeing now he's being linked to Real Madrid and he's been at Dortmund for like 10 minutes, right? I just think for United, and while I in principle agree with you, if the club performs, you keep the player. I think the issue for United is the PR. What happens when you, even if you just hear these murmurs, I think a lot of the United fans who have, a lot of them have turned their back with Pogba. They don't, they are ready and prepared for him to leave and they won't blink twice. And I think United are a worse off team without him. But I think when a player brings that circus of, You've been there for two months, and already at Dortmund, you're seeing it. Even just having the circus, even if it doesn't happen, is very disruptive to the team, potentially, and disruptive to the fan base. And as fans, we're obviously more loyal than anyone. And while loyalty is possibly dead in football, I think there's just that element within 
the fan base to say we want to see that in our players. And I think with when you're dealing with Rayola, unfortunately, that's just not the case. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to judge it by the player more than just the agent. I mean, the agent, okay, Riola might be a different beast, but ultimately the player dictates his future, not the agent. And uh, Erling Haaland, everything I see from him suggests he's a, a very level-headed individual. The way he started with Dortmund suggests that. Of course, he's going to be linked to other clubs. That's just normal. You, you, you know, there's so many publications and media outlets out there that have to generate stories. Obviously, they're going to write links of Holland to Real Madrid, but you're Manchester United. Like, I don't know, growing up in the 90s, to me, United just went for whoever they wanted and just backed themselves and had that arrogance about them because they're Manchester United. They weren't worried about all this other stuff that we're talking about now. And that's where my surprise comes from. It's just not the Manchester United that I grew up with in envy as a Liverpool fan, worried about all these outside influences when it came to, 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 to signing players. They just wanted the player went out and got them and said, well, you know what, we'll change them if there's an issue because we're just that big and just that good. Well, knowing how football works, I won't be shocked at all if we see Haaland at United next season in terms of Woodwards <laughs> and Rayola. They've got that relationship, whether it's a love-hate relationship, who knows. But if there is a so-called release clause yeah. now, I'm sure United definitely know what it is. Well, and... you'd have to be in the Champions League to get him, pure and simple. Well, yeah, what time uh, will tell. I'd agree with that. But what I do agree with, the best point you made there, Garby, was you said Rayol is a beast. And I have to agree with that. He is quite wide. Um, and I, in fact, <laughs> I think if he was locked up with me in isolation, I'd have no food. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, let's, talk, let's get to something that's probably a little bit more. Um, so let's talk about our favorite memories. I'm sure we all look forward to this time on every every football calendar. Um, United versus Liverpool. For me, it's the greatest <laughs> rivalry in English football. Yeah. As a United fan, yeah, Manchester City fans possibly view United as the biggest rival. For me, it will always be Liverpool United. And as a Liverpool fan, I imagine it's the same. Um, I know you have Everton down the road, but it's more friendly to me. What are your favourite memories, Gabi, um, when you talk about United-Liverpool? Oh, there's no doubt it's the biggest game, firstly. I mean covering these games for years in, in England, uh, there was a different feeling around this game compared to any other. Arsenal-Tottenham you know, could get close from time to time. Newcastle-Sunderland, and they were both in the Premier League, was big. But the rivalry of this was just as big. And where it is bigger is that it is the most watched football game in the world, probably alongside El Clasico. There's nothing else that captures the audience of world football like Liverpool United, the two most supported clubs in England. So it just had this extra dimension to it there's no doubt it's the i think along with el Clasico, the biggest game in in club football in the world and my memories there's so many look obviously the majority of them are liverpool positive memories but i'll start with a, a united memory i guess the 96 fa cup final i was only 13 years of age how old are you boys just out of interest 32 yeah so okay, 96 so, that was, was my two first, years old yeah that was my <laughs> first united liverpool memory that 96 i, I remember the goal I don't obviously remember the sort of the occasion of it being a last minute winner in the FA Cup sure. final sort of thing. So I didn't maybe appreciate it. What I definitely would have if it was now. But um, the yeah, point I was, was, yeah. So the point I was making is that back then, right? Because I'm 36, 96. We never had live games. Like we didn't yeah. get live football. There was no Fox Sports. There was no pay TV. We would get the FA Cup final once a year and like a highlight show once a week. So. The FA Cup final was always such a big event in Australia because you finally got to watch a full game with the build-up and the post-match and, and all of that stuff. So, 96, I'm, I'm 13, I'm ready. 
I'm so into it by then. And Liverpool playing in an FA Cup final against United. I just remember the build-up to that game for weeks, just being so excited to watch it, knowing deep down we probably weren't good enough, but hoping we would cause an upset and win that game. Uh, we didn't. Uh, Cantona scored that wonderful volley, and uh, United just seemed to have the edge over us mentally in 96. But that's a big memory because it was just such an exciting time for a youngster to watch that game in full. The other games that come to mind, 2001, John Arisa from a Liverpool point of view, his bomb, that free kick from outside the box. I just remember that was a, a special moment for a Reds fan, beating United in that way with such a, an amazing goal. Um, there's the, the 4-1 win at Old Trafford when Torres destroyed Vidic, who got sent off time after time oh, against Liverpool. And <laughs> that goal and that win, Gerard kissing the camera, that was a, an awesome one. Aurelio's free kick and... Yeah, that's, that was a, a great moment for Liverpool fans. And then being lucky enough, I guess, to, to cover the Premier League for five years and go to, to so many Liverpool United games. I watched us lose games. I watched us win games. I watched some great draws as well. But uh, in the 2013-14 season, when we almost won the league, doing the double over United in convincing fashion in that season, watching Suarez and Sturridge and Sterling and Coutinho and Gerrard run right at Old Trafford and then at Anfield as well. Yeah, obviously from a... As a Reds fan, that was amazing just watching that. And we enjoyed it immensely, that's for sure. So there's been plenty, lots of United, more United wins over the journey than Liverpool wins. But I've been lucky enough to see some some great Reds victories too. Oh, geez. Tom, he's reminded us of the 3-0 under the <laughs> glory days of David Moyes. I thought yeah. <laughs> I eradicated that from my memory, but it turns out it still exists. Yeah, yeah no, just a, a little bit painful going through all those memories there. Well, Sorry, boys. You invited me on. I had to bring him up. <laughs> Tom, let's return favour a little bit. Do you think United Liverpool, uh, what sticks out for you? Well, just as I mentioned earlier, I think my first memory was the Eric Cantona winner, but obviously being a bit younger, sort of didn't appreciate sort of the value of what actually happened at being against the big rival in an FA Cup final sort of thing. Um, but after that, I think the one that always sticks out for me is John O'Shea in front of the cop in the last minute. <laughs> obviously, to go on to win the title that season. We'd gone three seasons without winning the league, and that was obviously a big uh, moment in that game. After that, there's, there's been a lot of really good ones. I'm trying to think of it. Obviously, the one matter double a couple of years ago stands out. But um, I think that John O'Shea one is the one I always look back to because we were beyond horrible that day. Ronaldo had one of his worst games in a United shirt. It was it was just so bad. I think Paul Scholes was sent off for throwing a punch. It was just nothing went our way. Somehow um, Liverpool didn't take the lead. And then, um, yeah, just put a little free kick into the box. I think might have been Pepe Reina spilled it and John O'Shea for some reason was in there and um, fired into the roof of the net. So that's the one that always sticks out for me. Um, and in more recent times, which hasn't sort of yielded any success, is obviously the one matter double. Yeah, all good memories from both of you. It's a weird one for me, you know. When I think of United Liverpool, I, I go back to the game in January. To uh, we beat we, we beat Liverpool one nil, and it was actually a bludger of a game. Um, Ferdinand got it like tip of his head, but it just sticks out because I just remember Neville's celebration. And- fans the way he grabbed his jersey held the united badge um and i'm pretty sure he got fined substantially um and he famously said um if he had to do it again he would and get charged a hundred times so moving on um so when we obviously we don't know what's happening with this season we've talked at the opening of the Mm. podcast gabi what do you think is the perfect solution to this because obviously We've seen the season could be null and void. 
we've seen we need to finish this season no matter Premier League and for you as a Liverpool fan, I imagine you want to see the <laughs> club with the title. But in realistically, like from a Liverpool fan perspective, but also a football fan perspective, what's the perfect outcome? I think they've just got to find a way to finish the league. And yes, obviously, from a Liverpool point of view, I want us to win the league in the right way. Um, that goes without saying. I'd love to see us win it in front of fans. But uh, put Liverpool aside, it just with nine games to go, I think it would be ridiculous to call the season null and void. And Liverpool is, honestly, of all the things up in the air, Liverpool is the least relevant. What about Leeds and West Brom, who have battled for three quarters of the season to get promoted, are sitting in the top two, clearly? You can't just scrap that. The team's in League One. The team's in League Two. What about Leicester, who are having a magical season in order to make the Champions League? How can you just wash that away? Sheffield United, who are in the position to claim a European spot. Wolves as well. I mean, such amazing stories. If we were at the halfway point of the season, I'd say, all right, you've probably got no choice but to scrap it because how do you fit everything in? But the money aside, and that is a big issue for the, the Premier League and, the, and the, the Football League, is ensuring they get all the broadcast revenue, which keeps all the clubs obviously um, very wealthy, but also keeps a lot of them afloat, is ensuring they finish it for that aspect. But in the desire for fairness, you've just got to find a way to finish the league to ensure that everything is finished off. Now, when we can do that, we just don't know, of course. Um, but I think whenever football resumes, it will only take one month. It will only take one month. You finish it all, and then you start the next season. I know there are issues with player contracts and transfer windows and things like that, but these are such crazy, unprecedented times. Everything just needs to be flexible with that and just ensure you can finish the league and, uh, and then go from there. Because I think you're going to have far more problems if you don't finish the league. But I'm very interested in the point of view of you guys as United fans, knowing that that would mean Liverpool wins it, what you would actually want to happen. Tom, I'll let you take it. Yeah, well, look, banter aside, look, it's obviously a very serious issue now, this whole coronavirus. It's impacting all sorts of factors around the world. Um, And when you take your emotion out of it, people are dying, people are losing their jobs. You don't want to take a lighthearted approach to it. However, I think it's when you're discussing football with the mates, I think it is important to have a little bit of a joke about it where you can, as long as it's in good faith. There is a part of me that does definitely want the league to be voided so Liverpool don't win the league. I'll accept that. That's been bitter. 100%, I'll accept it. I do not want to see Liverpool win the league. However, look, yes, it's been fair. They 100% deserve it. Clubs like, as you say, Sheffield United, they deserve their chance to finish leads as much as I don't want them to do well. I'd like to see them in the Premier League. So they deserve their chance to go up. And if you finish it now, as you say, Liverpool's the easy selection. Do you just say, okay, the team's sitting in 18th, you're going to be relegated now without giving them the chance to get out of it? So, look, and look, from United's point of view, if it went back to last season's results, we find ourselves back in the Europa League. And I think you just don't know what's going to happen there. Like, we're pushing on towards Champions League football, and that's what we want if we want to sign the likes of Haaland. We're going to need Champions League football, so it does us no favours. It might just be the price we pay. We'll have to see Liverpool win the league. Um, if I'm going to keep my bitter hat on, I'll love it in an empty stadium so the fans don't witness it. But again, that's me <laughs> being bitter. But um, yeah, I, so I don't At least know you can what... admit it. Yeah, no, I'll gladly admit it. I, I, I do not want to see them win the league. But look, you have to admit, just thank God you didn't do the treble or go undefeated. But um, they're 100% <laughs> being the best team this season and they'll win it by record margin and rightly so because they're the best team. But it's painful to say that, but 
you kind of have to look from a United point of view. We need Champions League football to progress to the stage we want, and we can't do that if the league's sort of, however you describe it, sort of null and void. So, um, But I don't know how they finish it, because obviously I think it does need to be finished in fairness. However, I've seen the latest art, which I don't understand the logistics of how it would work, but this sort of quarantine-based month-long season sort of thing, find somewhere in the middle of the country, get all the clubs in there, 20 clubs, I don't know how that works. Um, and as I say, I think you could fit the games in, but I just, I don't know. I think, we're, I think we're a while away from anything like that happening. And the longer that drags on, the closer it eats into next season, which is going to have far more sort of greater impact in terms of that season, in terms of the finances, in terms of the next Euros. I just saw today Wimbledon was cancelled. So I think the longer this drags out, the bigger sort of hole we're going to dig ourselves. At time of recording this, the latest reports are the Premier League is very much intending to get the season back on track. They hope to place teams in hotels and keep them quarantined. They get a specific coach to take them to and from the hotel in games, obviously be played behind closed doors. But it's hard to not talk about the money as well. I think that's the biggest thing that's driving, you know, forcing the season to end. Um, FIFA and UEFA, whatever you think of them, they are very money-driven. That's just facts. I think these players and there's just way too much football on the players. I know they earn great amounts of money, but I think it's an opportunity to say, you know, it's a sign as well for them to re-look at how much football is being played across the calendar. But um, if we're looking at it, I think they have to get the season done, if it's at all possible. Um, just in terms of what Garvey said, the integrity of the season, um, Liverpool deserve to win the title, but I think what you've said in terms of the teams at the bottom like in the championship looking to come up, I just think the financial repercussions that the Premier League would face if they did deem the season null and void, the huge can of worms in terms of lawsuits, and I think they'll try and avoid that as much as they can. Um, guys, so we're nearly at the – we're on the home run now um, of the podcast. Garby, I hope you're hanging in all right. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Something, something that, we, that was on the agenda – the Hall of Fame and uh, the Premier League looking at introducing inductees. Um, Gabi, if you were looking at it, your perspective, what players would you, who were the first two inductees you would be putting into the Premier League Hall? Um, if it's just Premier League era, so from 92 onwards. Yeah, uh, correct. Yeah, look, I mean, I think Eric Cantona would... Oh, I wonder if he's, the kick out against Wimbledon and the band would, make, would mean that he has to wait a while. Probably would. In fact, with that in mind, not Cantona. From a playing point of view, he would be up there, but I think that might count against him a little bit if that had to had to happen, as it often does with Hall, in fame, Hall of Fames in sport. He might have to wait a little while to to uh, to be put through. Um, Peter Schmeichel, I don't think many players had more of an impact in the early era of the Premier League than, than Peter Schmeichel. Uh, he really just gave United just so much strength and attitude and arrogance, which was so important to them. So... Schmeichel would be one. He was wonderful for uh, for so long, of course. I think when you initially asked me this question on Twitter, you, you said Gerard or Scholes. Is that right? Who would go in first? Well, I was thinking from a United and Liverpool perspective, um, for me, like I just think that they, for those two clubs at least, were such a huge part of the Premier League. Um, maybe because I'm a little bit younger. Let's face it, I was five years old when the 90s ended. So maybe it's just my memory and what I recall. I just those two players when I think Premier League I, mm. those are the players that come to my mind 
Yeah, I mean, in the 90s, there were so many others. I mean, Alan Shearer, obviously, um, such a legend. Yeah. Thierry Henry's arguably the best player the Premier League's ever had. Um, Matthew Letissier from Southampton was extraordinary. I uh, would love to see him in. Um, you know, Roy Keane, obviously, uh, you would know about. But other players in the 90s, there are there are plenty. Bubba Ginola was quite wonderful uh, for a number of years. Robbie Fowler, from a Liverpool point of view. Mm-hmm. Ian Wright from Arsenal. Uh, in terms of the, the Gerard Scholes debate, who would go in first? Probably Scholes, just because he retired a little bit earlier. I think they're very even. I think if you look at the three premier central midfielders, attacking central midfielders in the Premier League era, uh, Gerard Scholes, Lampard, you can basically throw a blanket over all three of them. They're so very even. Uh, Gerard and Lampard probably have better highlight reels because they scored more goals. And Gerard was probably the most individually brilliant player. But he, Scholes was the complete midfielder. And what he won with United and what they achieved, I'm not so sure they would have without him. He was just so elite. And Lampard was brilliant. The amount of goals he scored, what he did for Chelsea was quite amazing. And Gerard quite often carried Liverpool on on his own. So I think all three are very even, but Skulls retired the earlier, so he probably goes in. That's the only way that you can decide it, I think. I think all three are pretty much on the same level. Got to say, that is a quite modest reply and not one that I expected, but I agree. <laughs> but I, look, I appreciate it. I think it's, I think that's a great take. I don't know if Tom will be as generous. Tom, who goes into the Hall of Fame for you? Well, before Garvey answered, I was preparing to get the knives out and go for a full-on Gerard <laughs> v. Skulls debate. But seeing his very polite and measured, um, yeah, look, he's probably not wrong in terms of what he just said. But I think the name that everyone's missed, and I think he's the first name that just st- strolls on into the Hall of Fame, is Ryan Giggs. I think, yeah. in terms of, I don't know what the sort of the um, criteria, yeah, criteria for the Hall of Fame will be. Look, he's the definition of the Hall of Fame player in terms of the longevity, the trophies won. Obviously, not the greatest player in the English Premier League in terms of ability, but he's a very good player. He's one of the not, best of his time. And, not the best um, brother just, either, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> if, if off-field indiscretions are taken into account, it might take him a while to get in there. I think a few United I don't, I don't players, think it will. I don't think it will in that sense. I think it's all yeah. on-field stuff. Do I can't and I might have to wait a little bit. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think Giggs... I think Giggs I think they said it was, it was going to be two players initially, but obviously it's been put on hold. And I think when they said it'll initially be two players inducted, I think the first two candidates have to be Alan Shearer and Ryan Giggs, just for mm. probably just the records they hold. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Giggs, he obviously has been, uh, he was quite wonderful so many years, but there's so many other great players and uh, great contributors to, to the Premier League. Do you, and, think, uh, uh, do you think it's important, not important, but do you think there's a concern that maybe there's too many options and it might sort of become a bit too flooded and a little bit too easy to make the Hall of Fame? Potentially. I think Hall of Fames work the best when it's um, it's strip-fed in and it takes a while for players to go in and, and you have to earn it. The first year, they might put in a, a bunch to get it going and then after that, it's, it's three, four players maximum. I just hope they don't make it a Premier League thing. I think if they're going to do... Uh, a Hall of Fame in English football, it's got to go all the way back. Like mm. football didn't start in 1992 due to a renaming of the league. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was the yeah. first division and then the Premier League. It didn't change. It's the exact same competition. Yeah. Money came into it because of the rebranding and the opening up of the borders and things like that in terms of, and the owners that came in. And it's, we love the Premier League era, but it's still the same football. If they're going to have a Hall of Fame. You have to include the first division all the way back through... 1900. So, if they only make it a Premier League thing, I think that would be insulting to uh, 
to a lot of players, a lot of clubs and basically 100 years of tradition. Yeah, look, I definitely agree with you. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have been catching up on a lot of Netflix during this time, but um, I started watching and um, just watching how football has evolved. Gee, if oh, that yeah. is what they wear, <laughs> if that's what they well. wear. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Um, just, yeah. I, I never thought that would have started like that, but it just shows you what became such a, like a working class sport, um, which was brilliant. I didn't know that. So um, uh, what, was, what was the main character's name, the fellow with the mustache? Uh, Fergus Suter. Fergus Suter. Uh, yeah, a great story, an amazing story. And uh, I implore anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it because uh, there's a bit of periodic drama that goes on and a few other storylines that aren't football-centric. But the, uh, the main theme, the evolution of football and how it became a game of the people and the start of the transfer market and buying players and selling players. It's just so interesting. And the evolution of tactics and the way football was played and the evolution of clubs and the fans being made important. I just think it's a great series and very educational as well. Yeah. Um, I know we've digressed a little bit, but the reason I put that up is because if I have a hall of, then Mr. Scooter has to go in for me. Oh, just yeah, yeah. Just, just for the even the, the fellow who did the acting, just having a, I really <laughs> admire a good mustache because it's funny and you don't. Garby, I just want to ask you a few questions. Um, so we've had a, I've had a few people just drop in a few questions that they want to ask you. So I've got sure. um, Ibs Malas asking, um, are you going to Optus Sport? So if that is something <laughs> you can tell us, um, and also what your favourite burger is. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to opt to sport as it stands. Uh, there's no discussions yet, so it's not exactly the best time to be uh, making these uh, sorts of uh, negotiations happen, of course, in the coronavirus time. But uh, yeah, nothing in the, in the works for that as it stands. Um, my favourite burger. That's interesting. My favourite burger is probably the burger of meat and wine. It's a bit pricey, but I do love uh, going to meat and wine every now and again. And the burger there is amazing. In terms of an average burger on the uh, on the street that you can find, uh, Betty's Burgers is pretty good. That's a new place that's probably popped up around Australia. Uh, their burgers are excellent. So they'd be the two. The United Pubcast, ladies and gentlemen, we're bringing you football. <laughs> we're bringing you burgers. We have everything here. Um, well, it's in the spirit of pub. I think it's in food as well. Um, we have Stefan Carreno is asking, have you ever asked a question to a Premier League manager or player and then got absolutely slaughtered for after asking it? Or alternatively, best story from an interview with a manager or player? <laughs> um, I got slaughtered, not get slaughtered, but I got a, a, a strong reaction was provoked once from Jose Mourinho. I can't remember the exact incident or the exact game, but it was at Stamford Bridge and a player was sent off, and I asked Mourinho about it, and he went berserk, not at me, but he went berserk at the notion of what had happened because you know, typical Mourinho, creator, basically a, a drama, link it to another incident that uh, didn't get red carded, another player that didn't get red carded, basically, and make a big hullabaloo out of it. And it was to one of my questions. So that was, that was rather interesting. Um, in terms of questions I've asked that have provoked interesting reactions uh there's not too many the majority were all pretty good i did ask olivia Giroud at arsenal <laughs> this is actually quite funny because i went to interview him at arsenal and um i asked people well, i didn't do it very often but on this occasion i did 
I asked people on Twitter, you know, did you have anything for Giroud? And everyone just wanted to know about his hair. How did he get his hair so perfect, <laughs> Olivia Giroud? So I asked all the proper questions. We did a good interview. And then at the end, I said, listen, everyone just wants to know. Your hair is amazing. How do you get it up like that? And he got so annoyed. He's like, man, everyone always asks me this. He goes, I get the hair dryer out and I hair dry, uh, blow dried. And then I put my favorite wax in and that's it. He goes, no more questions. The next time someone asks me a question like this, that's it. Interview done. So I think you've had <laughs> enough of it because he gets asked it all the time. So that's one that came to mind. I think that's the ultimate compliment. Um, I don't. Well, me, me and Tom like to give Duncan Castles a hard time. Um, to be honest, I think he's a really good journalist. I don't agree with some of his points, but I know one thing I would not ask Duncan Castles is how he keeps his hair in such good nick. Um, and I, I just want to ask you as well from my point of view, um, people always talk about the mystique of Fergie, and of course I'm biased as a United fan. Did, um, did you ever have any dealings with Fergie or a press conference and... Did you understand the aura that was around him as a manager? I understood the aura completely because I watched it all evaporate so quickly when David Moyes came in. I mean, it just the whole club, the whole club just changed. So I understood the aura. Um, I actually didn't interview Fergie ever. Um, I've never had a one-on-one interview with him. And I actually never went to one of his press conferences because he left about a year into it. And my role evolved over time. I started to do more and more over the years. And I hadn't really got into doing regular week-to-week things. I was just doing the odd game here and there um, until Fergie left, and then it stepped up a bit. So, But I watched United change enormously. And another interesting United story that you might want is... Um, so I interviewed Robin Van Persie, and you might remember the game United against Leicester when Van Hal had just started and Leicester beat oh, you don't at... remind us, don't remind us. <laughs> I think it was De Maria's first game, was it? Oh, it was early on. As he as scored. It was early, it was early yeah. on. He scored and then Leicester came back to beat you and it was a big shock and that was the start of Leicester's great run and interviewed Van Persie about it and Van Persie being Dutch, they're just pretty upfront and honest more often than not and um, Van Persie basically said, he gave me a great line saying that, yeah, we had a clear the air talks after that game and you know, chairs were thrown and things were said and everyone just got everything out in the open, which is obviously a great story for my interview. And it was mm-hmm. it was bound to be picked up in the local papers. And after the interview, I got a call, was it the next day or the next morning? I think it was the next morning from United's media manager, who I got on reasonably well with. And she said, oh, yeah, Robin Van Persie's called me. He's not too happy about that line that he said. He wants to know if it could be taken out. He, he, he regrets it. And I've gone... I, to be honest, the interview had already been set. So I said, well, it's a bit too late. It's been set. So there's nothing we can do. Um, but I remember thinking afterwards, there's no way that Robert Van Persie would have bothered about that. He just wouldn't have cared. Yeah. He would have, it wouldn't have mattered to him. But the media manager obviously wanted to stop it from getting out in the papers. And I just thought that was the whole Fergie era. Just manage the media as much as you can. And the remnants of it was still there, but the club was completely different. And everything they tried to do without Fergie, it just didn't quite work because they didn't have the same success on the field and therefore the same aura off the field and the same man running the show on all areas. So it changed so dramatically. And that was an interesting story that sort of summed it up for me. That's wonderful insight. Cheers, Gavi. Tom, is there anything you want Daniel? No, I, was, I just had in just on my notes here on my phone. That was the one thing I was going to ask if you did have any sort of a memorable sort of interaction with anything United related. But obviously, just that Van Persie story is very interesting, and <laughs> it's something that I can definitely see the club doing, or at least attempting to try and do. And obviously, 
I don't want to say we fail across the board, but obviously <laughs> failing to get the story out in time. Yeah, but there are other United interviews and they were great. They, they certainly opened up a lot more once Fergie left. I mean, Fergie yeah. controlled everything and they realised they had to change. And then once they started to uh, drop off in terms of, of the success, well, they had to open things up. They, they couldn't afford to have that arrogance anymore because they weren't matching it with the results. You can afford to be like that when you're up the top every year, but when you're not, well, you've got to show a bit more humility. And the players started to show that a lot as well in terms of interviews. I interviewed Wayne Rooney twice, who was excellent, just really shy, but excellent. Ryan Giggs was lovely. Interviewed Van Hal as well, who was good to talk to. So, no, I was lucky enough to do a fair few interviews at United and uh, and always enjoyed going there. Oh, beautiful. Gabby, my last question for you is, well, we've had Mark Bosnich on this podcast and <laughs> I asked him if he thinks uh, Solskjaer will win a title uh, with United and uh, Bozza said yes, and I don't know if he genuinely believed that, or maybe as a United fan, he's just hoping for the best, like mm-hmm. I suppose every fan does. From a Liverpool fan perspective, just give me a yes or no answer. Do you <laughs> think United will win a title with Solskjaer as boss? No. Do you want me to expand? or <laughs> Tom, do we let him? Well, I think, yeah, might as well. He's the guest. Uh, let him have his say. Because I <laughs> okay. think a lot, a lot of people probably agree with him. I tell you what, yeah. Gabby, let me rephrase the question. Will Solskjaer be sure. a success at Manchester? So whether so that, that's winning a title or not. That's an interesting question. Um, geez, it's hard to say at this stage. It really is. I know that you're improving a lot at the moment, but it's still got that feeling about it. And it's obviously hard to comprehend now because the league's been paused, but it's still got the feeling about it that West, while they were on a great run, couple of bad losses in a row and it's straight back to the speculation over his future and it's straight back to the criticism it hasn't been sustained enough for now that doesn't mean i don't think he can be a success i think he can i think in terms of winning the league i struggle to see it simply because of the way that clubs like liverpool and man city are set up they just seem to have a far better operation above the manager in terms of transfer committees and the owners. United still seems to be a bit ad hoc with Ed Woodward and all the issues with the Glazers. It just I think you just need to be perfect now in all those areas to actually go on and win the league. And uh, I, I just don't see United having that set up in comparison to Liverpool and City and maybe a couple of other clubs potentially as well. But they can get close to it. I think they can potentially get close to it. The next few years will be interesting, but let's. I think we can all agree here. Let's just hope the football is back soon. Garby, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hopefully, we can have you on. Um, take care, stay safe, and cheers for being. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, boys. It's been great to uh, talk some football in this uh, this crazy and depressing time. <laughs> no, thank you, heaps, man. Thanks, Garby. We'll catch you in the next one, guys. Cheers.